0: Taking up a variety of topics as diverse as working from home to sporting events to the role of the board of directors to crisis management to the role of supply chains. We will look at all of these in this podcast. If you have a topic you'd like covered on compliance and coronavirus, please let me know. I'd be happy to do a podcast on it. We conclude Exeter Week on compliance and coronavirus with Anna Osborne. Anna is the senior vice president of growth and marketing and Exeger. And we take a look at how senior management can take a narrative around the changes that have been brought forth by COVID-19 to build a stronger organization. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have Anna Osborne with me. Anna is the Senior Vice President of Growth and Marketing at Exiger and, more importantly, a Spartan. So... We don't get too many of us on this podcast, Anna, so I have to bring that up, so go green. I love it. Go white. Thanks, Tom. So, Anna, uh, we are recording this in mid-August, and uh, for better or worse, I think we've all seen uh, how businesses have changed, how the delivery of services have changed, how achieving long-term growth has changed in uh, not only the regulatory environment, but really the environment we're in now. So I was wondering if we might be able to start with, what are some of the top two or three questions you're getting from your clients sort of today on how they can uh, deliver a service uh, and still achieve a long, long-term long revenue growth?
1: Yeah, thanks for that. And, and you know, it's interesting because while we are, um, you know, in August and what I think this all hit in, in a most meaningful way in the United States around March, um, there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty in front of us. And so, well, some of our clients have experienced really meaningful impact in the way of budget cuts, furloughs, FTE reductions um, to their compliance functions. Others are kind of trying to hedge, if if you know what I mean. So, what what does the future hold? How can I best prepare? Um, and 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 sort of trying to understand how their peer group is navigating this really complex situation. Um, to arm themselves and start, I think, to kind of promote a narrative in, um, at the leadership level that really kind of presents a set of solutions that can maintain their ability um, to really uh, retain their resilient um, compliance fun- functions, right? So uh, in the absence of having a really clear view of what the next six to 12 months looks like, as clear as we, you know, we may ever have, um, people are really trying to understand, like, what are my what are my options here in the event that I have a big budget cut in the event that I'm asked to have my compliance team? Um, how can I best um, protect my firm and, and, and revenue um, in the absence of a really robust compliance function?
0: And I'd like to pick up on something you said, which uh, I've not heard in this podcast series. And it was I, hope I wrote this down right. Create a narrative. Uh, you have a marketing uh, professional background, so obviously creating narratives is something that you do. But why do you believe it's so important for senior leadership in a corporation to create a narrative?
1: So, look, I think in the past, um, you know, it, and it depends on leadership, right? You see some executive or board level priorities that very much include compliance as a as a. Um, a fundamental priority for driving the firm's growth, right? And, and they, they are who we would describe as like the, the group that gets it, right. Um, and then you see some that are in more nascent stages and still really see compliance functions as cost centers um, and, and very sort of, you know, the the first place we take out funding, et cetera in times of in times of um, revenue challenge. And um, I think the more our compliance leaders and, and oftentimes they lean on us to help them, um, empower their boards with some different sets of thinking. The more our compliance leaders are in a position to um, bring their their board level decision makers um, through thinking that really takes them down the path to say, "Look, compliance is no longer uh, it's no longer a cost center. We we really work to try and empower our teams to." um, create real return in, in so many ways. Right. And so where you can help, uh, leadership understand the value of really the, you know, defending revenue, protecting revenue, um, helping companies make the right decisions in order to protect their, their reputations down the line. Um, you know, that's the direction we want to, we want to take things because we've seen it happen over and over and again. And, and unfortunately you don't really see that impact until, um, something happens and then the company has to go back to their policies and procedures and say, hey, look, we had the right po- policies and procedures. We had the right controls in place. We took the right steps um, and really defend the, the program they had in place to um, you know, really protect what happens to them in the event of an incident.
0: And not only are some of your thoughts music to the ears of compliance practitioners, they're music to my ears because I advocate that effective compliance equates to more efficient business process which equates to greater ROI but do you find that that message resonates with professionals you work with who are outside the compliance discipline
1: well look it's i think it's a little bit nuanced right and i think in some ways um you know and, and in some in some compliance functions it can still very much be seen as a cost center a very sort of perfunctory set of exercises that that are um, driven and required, that kind of still get in the way of business, et cetera. And I think it all comes down to how compliance leadership is managing their program. And in today's world, it's amazing how many sort of antiquated solutions you still see um, on the market to to manage um, the risks and and very complex regulatory landscape that we're in today. I mean, you can rewind the clock and in some ways, a lot of those solutions still look very much the same that they did before we had this just completely unmanageable amount of data this completely unmanageable amount of expectation from the regulatory and enforcement agencies and and so i get it right like i guess what i'm trying to say is is i understand where they're where they're coming from for the compliance leadership and teams who um, are, are moving forward to sort of the next gen set of, um, solutions where they're leading with data analytics, where they're really, uh, in, in injecting technology into everything that they're doing, where they're looking to the purpose built solutions that are very specifically designed to navigate that very complex, um, kind of risk and regulatory landscape. That's where we can very confidently and defensively make the argument that 100%. Um, these are business drivers. We're protecting revenue. We really empower people to make fast and confident decisions for their business to move forward on important uh, partnership decisions, important, um, you know, uh, joint venture uh, decisions, agents, distributors, you know, all these types of things that in the past, you know, compliance has sort of been seen as the department of no, because they just hold things up. Like it takes so long and then they have to you know, put a tremendous amount of rigor in and they might be disorganized and how they get approvals and so on and so forth. And there are a lot of companies out there that are helping, um, helping compliance teams, um, completely change all of that. And so, um, where, where compliance leadership are adopting a more modern set of solutions to drive their programs forward and take an increasingly holistic view, um, of their sort of risk landscape. That's, that's, I think where, where uh, we really empower compliance leaders to stand behind this concept of creating value for their business.
0: And as we move to through the end of this year and into 2021, uh, I've unfortunately come to the, at least my realization, that COVID is going to be with us. Many of the changes we've had to make from March, -March, uh, mid-March, if not permanent, will still be with us. So I was wondering sort of in that context of 6, 12, perhaps even 18 months out, uh, are there any trends you see either accelerating or things that you're counseling your clients to begin to prepare for?
1: Yeah, I I do, and I I think you're right about that outlook. I mean, it'll be so interesting to see where we land. Um, And and even prior to uh, COVID-19, we at Exeger were seeing – an increasing appetite for what we've called managed services. You see it um, named all sorts of different things, but but what that means um, in, in our conversations with clients is uh, people are really starting to explore this idea of uh, really utilizing a third-party provider to help them with sort of the heavy lifting associated. Um, with mitigating the risks associated with all sorts of their third-party relationships, right? Whether it's clients, customers, suppliers, agents, distributors. Um, and, and the way that we're really encouraging um, clients to explore that option is, look, you know, you have leaner and meaner teams. Um, your your budgets are, and, and, and typically this is where it happens, right? When a company starts to feel sort of a squeeze on their budget and they can no longer um, maintain the The larger uh, compliance teams that they had in the past. Um, so, So what we're seeing is companies saying, look, we have so, so much to manage that we are in a position where we are sort of spreading our peanut butter too thin, if you will. So, you know, if we have a thousand third parties and 800 of them are alerting on a regular basis, what we just can't with confidence really focus our team's um, kind of high brain work in in an appropriate way. We don't know where to start. And so one of the things that that we've done and, and, you know, look, actually a fair number of clients do things like outsource to offshore locations where, um, many people in this space are using what we would call sort of body shops to manage this type of, um, this type of work. The drawback with that is that in the absence of some level of specialization and compliance and risk, Um, you're really potentially putting your company at risk when you take that move, right? Like, let's just throw it to a bunch of people, you know, who may not have any level of expertise here, but it's simple work, right? So they can manage it for us. Well, not exactly. We've seen so many clients do that and then pull the function back internally and then say, gosh, this isn't working either. And so looking to companies who have um, a group um, or a, a core group of, of, you know, more junior analysts that specifically focus on just this type of work, um, who can really make proper decisions, escalate the meaningful risk that leadership and compliance team should be focused on prioritizing as they consider how to, uh, you know, evaluate risk. So they're not focused nearly as much as identif- in identifying the risk. They're focused much more on the evaluation of risk so that then their companies can make those fast decisions, move forward quickly, and then, of course, create and maintain sort of a monitoring program um, that is in line with their company's risk appetite but doesn't consume all of their team's really, really important and valuable time.
0: Anna, you mentioned something that I wanted to follow up on, and that was outsourced compliance or the outsourcing of compliance. That's a concept that was originally formulated by the Department of Justice in the 2019 evaluation of corporate compliance programs and brought forward in the updated 2020 version as well. And the DOJ recognized that companies do outsource all or part of their compliance function. This does not leave a company of potential liability, but they can outsource the work. But they put three caveats around that in the phrase of questions. So I'd just like to read these questions to you and ask you Uh, some follow-ups from that. Number one, why and who is responsible for overseeing or liaisoning with the external firm or consultant? Number two, what level of access does the external firm or consultant have to company information? And number three, how has the effectiveness of the outsourced process been assessed? So I'd like to uh, ask you, how do companies, or how do you counsel perhaps companies to answer these questions, and do you feel they are appropriate questions to ask?
2: Yeah and I I'll, I'll start with your second question first and and the answer is yes absolutely we we feel that those are very appropriate questions for people to ask and i think in the absence of answering those questions and really um sort of solving for them before engaging in a relationship with a third party provider to manage all or part of your compliance function um you know it, it it it's not a it's not a a good idea right i think that that um in the past we saw a lot of companies sort of hit that sort of series of questions and say, okay, no, th- this is not going to work for us. We can't do it. And increasingly we see more and more companies see the value of saying, look, if, if we can find someone to help us find the risk and we can prioritize our energy and resources on actually analyzing the risk and, and decisioning what what we want to do moving forward, we can completely revolutionize our compliance function to be much more forward-thinking, which will inevitably empower the organization um, in all sorts of really positive ways. So I think when it comes down to it, in terms of where uh, the relationship needs to report into, I think, look, it needs to have a high level of oversight by compliance leadership. Um, Certainly, you know, policies and procedures will be put in place to manage the relationship, um, but in the absence of that, it's just like any um, third party relationship, right? If you aren't paying close attention um, to the decisions that are being made and to the work that's being done, um, then, you know, for something as, as, you know, important as compliance and risk mitigation, um, you're putting your company at risk. So absolutely, it needs to be managed um, at the highest level. And then also, um, I think there's some debate about where QA sits, and that's been a big, a big challenge, right? So for companies who have sort of outsourced to an offshore firm, where we hear commonly is, is where it falls apart is at the QA level. In the absence of having highly skilled individuals who have experience in managing this type of risk, um, you know, to, to run the, the quality assurance element of the program, um, it it really tends to kind of not maintain a sufficient level of quality in order to give uh, the partnering firm a, a high. Um, sense of um, kind of confidence that they're in good hands, right? And so I think QA is incredibly important and understanding sort of the third-party firm's ability to um, create a solid quality assurance program, maintain it, and continue to invest in it, right? We've seen some firms who invest in it um, in, in the outset of the relationship, and then they kind of peel it away and let more junior, less experienced resources manage the quality assurance layer. And that's when it falls apart. And so I think, um, at Exeter for example, it's, it's so critical to what we do. Um, and we put a tremendous amount of investment training and, and planning into our quality assurance layer. And it's where we feel like we, we really differentiate in, in the opportunity to help, um, with a managed service. Um, in terms of how, uh, the success of the program is managed. Again, I think reporting and having a really robust and regular um, cadence around reporting is is critical, right? So these are, are the KPIs that we're managing to. This is how our team is is having success on a weekly basis monthly basis, yearly basis against those KPIs, and here is the very specific remediation program that we have in place in order to address any sort of gaps in the program, right? So a constant evaluation, not once yearly, not quarterly, but an ongoing constant um, evaluation exercise that demonstrates that the third-party firm is is constantly looking at performance at the individual level To understand where we need to course correct in order to maintain the integrity of the program, maintain the quality of the output, and continue to reinforce this uh, confidence that that they are um, in good hands with the decisions that they're making. So I think for us it's, you know, we've really, um, look, Exeter in some part was really launched for this type of work, And I think when when we initially started, we didn't jump right in. We took a step back. We did a lot of research on kind of who the players in the space were and understanding from our clients, what are their biggest shortcomings? What are their biggest pain points? And then how can we build a program um, that takes a very different approach and focuses on all of those things in a way that really addresses the specific needs of our financial institution and corporate clients? Um, so that when they decide to hand over all or part of their compliance program, um, there's a real level of confidence, and we truly do feel like an extension of their team. The things that we've seen happen kind of as a result of this type of work, right, is that, one, um, the people who are internal to the compliance function um, are immediately uh, allowed to kind of focus their you know, very important and critical decisioning on the biggest risks that are presented to their firm. They become much more focused in their work and they can do um, what they're actually intended to do with a completely different level of confidence because they have this small but mighty and very high-brained army behind them to help them kind of see um, a few steps ahead all along the way, right, which is a game changer for a lot of these companies. The other really interesting thing is that we've seen a lot of companies who um, may have sort of um, a, a constant or continual sort of backlog or remediation need um, because of certain BAU policies and procedures. They create these backlogs when certain things happen inside their programs, but they're treating them kind of as a as a a, a remediation when in fact it's intended to be part of their business as usual. So, what what this type of uh, managed services concept allows them to do is to sort of flatten out that volatility inside their FTE story so we no longer have to, you know, go through the peaks and valleys and saying, oh, we have to hire 50 people tomorrow in order to manage this upcoming backlog because we need to refresh, you know, 5,700 client files When, in fact, all of that was written into their business-as-usual policies and procedures, but because of the cost associated with having to manage that level of FTE on an ongoing basis, it's not smart economically for these um, institutions to kind of keep that level of employee um, employed full-time. But the amount of friction created by constantly having to onboard people to manage those backlogs or manage sort of the client file refreshes, et cetera, is just incredibly disruptive to a compliance function and creates, you know, very necessary, but distraction nonetheless, um, that can become completely disruptive to the rest of their program. And so where we can help companies sort of maintain a more regular cadence around their business as usual activities, um, that's a big priority um, for us as well. And one where we feel like we can add a lot of value in this crazy sort of unabating increase in data volume, um, which of course then leads to alerting volume, right? When it comes to media monitoring um, or even sanction screening, this type of thing, people are just inundated and and they end up spending all of their time kind of digging through sort of that data haystack for the risk needle and they lose a real um, important amount of time to actually prioritize and analyze the risks that exist um, and flag them um, appropriately.
0: And unfortunately we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any additional information on the topics you've raised, where could they find it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So exeger.com. Um, and always feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. Um, we love to learn and listen from our clients. So anytime we have an opportunity to meet with them directly to hear what's is on their mind from a compliance perspective, how they're thinking about the next six to 12 months. It's incredibly valuable for us to learn and and make sure that we're able to deliver solutions um, to meet all those ongoing and and rapidly changing needs.
0: And I hope as we move into the second half of this year and perhaps even to 2021, I might be able to call upon you again for some advice on uh, where we might be at that point in time. Of course, absolutely,
2: Tom, and thanks so much for this opportunity.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance and Coronavirus. This is the only B2B podcast which brings clear and sane information for both the compliance professional and a business executive. If I could ask you uh, to do one thing, if you could tell one person about this podcast, I'm trying to get the word out uh, about this motioning podcast in the Compliance Podcast Network. So if you could tell one person about it, send them a copy, send them a link, do something uh, to help me publicize this podcast, I would greatly appreciate it. Compliance and Coronavirus is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network, and it appears Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of each week. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join me again for another episode.